Thanks, Jason. Good morning, everybody. I think we're going to have to add a, a nice millennial team to our welcome team to help everybody with this app world and everything. Um, but yeah, just, just to reiterate what Tracy was saying, if you've never been over to the Fit Closet, it's over there off College Avenue behind the, the Methodist Church that's kind of across from the baseball stadium area. Um, Fit Closet does some absolutely incredible work in our community, and so I would, I would encourage everyone, stop by the table, pick up some flyers, even if it's just to learn a little bit more about this, this service and this, uh, this group that, that, hap- that happens in our town. Um, you know, you can pray for them, you can help them out, support them, um, just to know that it's there and be able to even recommend it to people. Uh, it truly does care for um, our kids and some of our most overlooked families in, in Manhattan. So I would love uh, lots of people to stop by that table and, and talk to Tracy after, after the service. Well, this morning, as we, uh, as we continue our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, I'm going to ask you to consider what might be a difficult and perhaps even uncomfortable question to, to think about. It's a question that humanity has been wrestling with ever since the beginning. You can sense it in the background of the story of Adam and Eve. You can read all about how Israel struggled to find an answer to this question as they wandered through the wilderness or or during the time of the judges and in each and every rise and fall of the kings and kingdoms of Israel. And then you can see it again, this question again in the New Testament, shaping the lives of Jews and Gentiles alike. Jesus himself hinted at this question when he challenged his followers, just as he challenges you and I today, with these words from Mark chapter 8, verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What Jesus is driving at and what the Bible repeatedly leads us to consider and what Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 will ask us today is this, what do you really, truly value in this life? What do you really, truly value most in life? Or more specifically, really digging down into what the text is going to ask of us, what is the value and the worth you place on knowing God and having a rich relationship with him, especially in comparison to anything and everything else? What is the value and the worth you place on knowing God and having a rich relationship with him? Now, this is not an easy question to answer. It has tremendous power to to humble us and and demands from us an honest response. It has a a reputation for reorienting lives and changing the way that we we think and feel and even the ways that we act. It searches the innermost reaches of our hearts and reveals whether or not Christ is found there at the center or whether we've allowed something else to move in there and take place on the altar in our heart of our desires. What is the value and the worth you place on knowing God and having a rich relationship with him? That's the question that I want you to keep at the forefront of your mind as we move through the text this morning. If you brought your Bibles or if you have a preferred Bible reading app, uh, then I'm sure you can ask a nice millennial to open up for you if you need to. Um, But I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. That's where we're going to start. The the verses will also be on the screen behind me as we move forward. But again, it's Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, verse 1 through 11. Now, over the past few weeks, we've seen that Paul's letter to the, to the believers, this letter to the Philippians, was a letter full of love and, and warmth and admiration. The church that received this letter was one that Paul himself had helped start during what we call his second missionary journey sometime around the years of 49 to 52 AD. You can actually find the origin story for the Philippian church in the book of Acts in chapter 15. 
And so because of that, we know a little bit about this congregation. We know what some, at least some of the people would have been like. And we know that there would have been a group of women, probably wealthy women, business women, that, that Paul had met down by a river that would have made up some of this congregation. And there would have also likely been a jailer, someone who was actually responsible for imprisoning Paul. Uh, and then through some miraculous events and an earthquake and a whole lot of grace, that jailer came to believe and to have faith in Jesus Christ and led his entire family to faith as well. Now, perhaps around 10 or so years later, Paul writes to this beloved church to encourage them, to build them up, and to remind them to trust and cherish the gospel above all things. But he also writes to warn them of the dangers of being deceived by false teachers. And in this case, the false teachers appear to be, have been a group known as the Judaizers. Now, these were Jewish Christians, people that believed that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but they also believed that Gentile Christians needed to adopt traditional Jewish customs and, and obey the laws of Moses. And one of the most controversial things that the Judaizers were teaching at this time is that Gentile Christians needed to take the prescribed physical steps to enter into the Abrahamic covenant and thus become part of God's chosen people, which means that they were teaching every Gentile Christian male that they needed to be circumcised. As you might imagine, this turned out to be a little bit of an obstacle and a point of contention in the early church, especially for those new believers who happened to be adult males. Part of Paul's mission during the second missionary journey was to share a decision made by the Christians gathered at something we call the Jerusalem Council. You'll find that in Acts 15 as well. And he was to share this, this decision with the churches of the Roman Empire. And what these leaders had decided was that circumcision should not be required of Gentile believers. Paul and the other, other church leaders had seen the Holy Spirit fill Gentiles without adherence to the old, old covenant customs and laws, which led them to determine that under this new covenant, under the grace and the sacrifice and the resurrected life of Jesus Christ, maintenance of one's own personal righteousness through the law was no longer necessary. That's no longer how the people of God were going to be identified. Devotion to Jesus, who perfectly fulfills the law on our behalf, is now what unites us and defines us and makes us righteous. It is not that the old covenant laws can be ignored or that they were bad or that they need to be disregarded. They're still good to help us learn the kind of character that God wants us to have and learn good things about God and the way that we should live our lives. But instead, it's that the new covenant leads us to shape our lives around the gratefulness that we have for Jesus and what he has done for us, what he continues to do for us. It leads us to be grateful for the fact that we are saved by his completed work. And so with all this in mind, Paul, in a few of his letters, strongly denounces the teachings of the Judaizers for this reason. He believes that they aren't preaching the gospel of Jesus, that they're not preaching the gospel of grace, but instead the gospel of grace plus something else, plus something you do, plus something you add to the works of Jesus. And for Paul, he can't tolerate this because that, that, that messes with this, this perfect gift that God has given us. And so he tells the Philippian believers what he thinks about the people that teach these things and, and what he thinks about these teachings, which is what we find in chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, before his rather abrupt outburst against false teachers in, in verse 2 there, Paul once again reminds the Philippian Christians to rejoice in the Lord. 
And this similar command, we've already seen it through verse chapters 1 and 2 of Philippians, and, and we've talked about it a little bit through some of our other sermons. So I don't want to spend too long on this idea, but I do want to make this one point. To rejoice in the Lord is not to have some passive encouragement to be superficially cheery about God. Paul doesn't have some foolish notion that everything about following Jesus is all sunshine and roses. Remember, Paul is likely writing this letter while sitting in a Roman prison, or at least under Roman guard, and is already on the path that will lead to his eventual execution. Rejoice in the Lord doesn't mean, isn't Jesus grand for making everything in our life so easy and carefree and comfortable? No, instead, the command that Paul gives to the church is to remember that joy in this life is, is maintained, can only be really, really truly held on to if it's drawn from one's relationship with Jesus. Not from the material blessings that Jesus might give, or even from the things that you might accomplish in his name. True and everlasting joy comes from our loving, faith-filled connection with Jesus himself. You cannot rejoice in anything or anyone else and expect that joy to be complete or eternal. All right, some people that are very familiar with that truth are my fellow Kansas City Royals fans, right? 2014, 2015, joy in the team, just overflowing. Hallelujah, praise Jesus, awesome, championships abound. This year, nothing really lasts forever, does it? Which is Paul's point. Don't waste your time rejoicing, only rejoicing, only investing all of your joy in the things of this earth. Circumstances change, and what was once good can become quite bad quite quickly. But it is not so with Jesus. Our Savior never stops loving us. He never stops working on our behalf, and he never stops pouring out grace upon our lives. Rejoice in the Lord. As long as your joy is in Jesus, it is never misplaced. We can stand up against the powers and the principalities that plague this world because our joy is secured in the victorious Christ. Things in this world may often be very hard, but take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. We've got an eternity of victorious living to look forward to. In the meantime, Paul warns the Christians of Philippi that they need to be careful about who they listen to and and what they learn and, and what they choose to believe. The sad and heartbreaking truth is that not everyone shares the gospel for the right reasons. Not everyone shares the gospel in a healthy, theologically responsible way. And sometimes the temptation to insert ourselves and make our works and our deeds and part of our salvation is just too great. We want to insert ourselves into what's going on in the works of salvation. We like the false sense of security that comes from seeing the gospel as something Jesus did plus something else we do. And we like it because we like to feel like we've contributed, that we've done something, that some part of our salvation is under our control. But Paul has no patience for such things. He warns his readers, look out, look out, look out, beware, beware, beware. Be on your guard against anyone who teaches that your faith in Jesus Christ is achieved by your belief in the gospel plus these other things that you do or add. He calls such teachers dogs and evildoers and accuses them of mutilating the flesh. And this is perhaps really shocking and and disturbingly harsh language. Um, There's a bunch of history and cultural significance behind each of these terms. But if you'll allow me a a simple summary for why Paul chose these things, it's basically this. There were some Jews at the time, and there were even some Judaizers, some Jewish Christians, that used these terms to describe the people that they considered outside the people of God, the the non-Jews, the Gentile population. They would call them dogs. They would call them evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. 
And so what Paul is doing is he's turning these terms back on the Judaizers, back on these Jewish Christians to give it some shock value and say, listen, although you thought you were, you were trying to help by, by adding these things and by telling the Gentile believers that they had to keep the Mosaic law to, and had to become part of the old covenant community through the, the custom, through the practice of circumcision, in reality, all you're doing by demanding that of them is, is heaping things that are unreasonable and unhelpful and in fact, a grace killing, these grace killing extras upon their faith. And Paul says part of the new covenant community means we don't do those sort of things anymore. We don't demand those sort of things of the people that are coming to faith in Christ. While it is probably unfair to assume a malicious intent from the Judaizers, they are nonetheless engaged in evil activity by, the way, by way of their false assumed superiority and their poor theology and, their, and their, their habit, their teaching of adding things to the gospel that should not be added. Paul's point is this, we must never add anything to the gospel. We must never think that we can add or accept any extra qualifiers, any additional work, or personal achievements to what Jesus has done for us. Now, we don't really deal with the specific problem of, of circumcision being added to, to, to the gospel in, in this culture very often. It's, it, that's not the thing that you normally hear very often anymore. But that doesn't mean that we don't struggle with the belief that, Jesus, that faith in Jesus is the gospel plus something else, something we bring to the table, something that we want to do for ourselves that helps us earn God's love. If you think for a moment, what are some of the things that you've heard, that you've been told you need to add to your faith to really truly be a Christian? Or perhaps some things that you need to confess that you've told others that they need to add to their faith, that they need to add to the gospel to really truly be a follower of Christ, to really truly be a part of his church. As I thought about that this week, uh, uh, quite a few things came up, and I'm, I've both heard these things said to me and been guilty of saying them to, uh, to people before at one time or another in my life. Perhaps it's allegiance to one particular denomination that you are absolutely convinced has everything right. That's the only way to really truly be part of the church. Perhaps it's a certain political view or a particular voting record that really makes you understand the gospel and, and preach it well. A theological distinctive that ends up defining more of your understanding of faith than Jesus himself. Having the right kind of friends, the right kind of children, the right kind of job, being involved in the right kind of ministry, dressing the right sort of way, or, or having the right kind of quiet time, right kind of devotional time, all of these things have to be attached to the gospel in order to really make it effective in your life. Or one that's a common stumbling block these days, and, and I will admit has been a, a thing that I have to work through, is having the right kind of social justice issues that you care about and melding those in with your definition of the gospel. See, the tricky thing is that all of these things can be good. All of these things are things that we should care about, and, and they can be engaged through our faith in Christ. But to give them a place in our hearts alongside the gospel and to preach them in the same breath as the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, that's when it starts becoming the gospel plus, and that's when we start getting it wrong. We can't go down those dangerous and destructive roads. We need to check ourselves and make sure that we're not believing in or preaching a gospel of personal achievement or works-based salvation. So the question, of course, is how do we do this? How do, how do we check ourselves? How do we know whether or not we're straying down that wrong path? How do we make sure that our faith in Jesus alone is what, we're, is what we know saves us and what we're telling others saves them as well? Well, Paul gives us the mindset that we need to have in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is an amazing sentence, especially when you think about it in the context of the entire biblical story. 
Paul is saying that the people of God, who at one time were designated by their adherence to the law and their compliance with the commands such as circumcision, these people, the true people of God, are now identified by our worship of God, by our, our heartfelt worship of God, made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through our faith in Jesus Christ, who truly delivers us, or who truly deserves our credit and, and, and is responsible for our salvation. He deserves our every confidence. We are now identified by our worship of God, made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through our faith in Jesus Christ, who truly deserves the credit for our salvation and our every confidence. We have done nothing to earn this blessing. It is a gracious gift of the Lord. In other words, everything about our relationship with God, everything about our relationship with God is a product of the grace of God. We worship him by the power of his spirit, and give glory to Christ, his son, who saved us by calling us to faith in himself. Everything about our relationship with God is a product, is a gift of the grace of God. If that doesn't drive you to your knees in thankfulness, then that's probably when you need to check your heart. Because you've, you've probably held on to something. You, you, you're holding on to some belief that something you've done is, is, was good enough to win favor, the favor of God that God owes you your salvation. He does not. We cannot add anything to our lives that makes saving us more worth it to God. To believe that we can is to have confidence in the flesh, which is exactly what Paul warns us we must not do. There is no gospel plus something else you add or something else you do that makes you a better candidate for salvation. Everything about our relationship with God is a product of the grace of God. And I think it would be an, an absolutely fantastic and wonderful and worthy use of your time this week to, to reflect on what has the grace of God done in your life. Maybe you could add it to your, to your however you spend your devotional time or, or add it to your life group's time together or, or get some friends together and talk about it and really reflect on what is the grace of God, how has it showed up in your life, what has it done, and how has it changed your life? This week as I was working on this passage, I, I thought about this and, and thought about what the things the grace of God has done for me, and the list got longer and longer as I went. One of the things that it has done is made me realize that I don't have to be perfect, that I don't have to please everybody, and in fact that I'm going to fail at times and that it's okay to fail at times because God is full of grace and he's got things under control anyway, and so the little things that I might fail at aren't going to be things that, that tip over his plan for eternity. It's led me to desire and pursue a meaningful relationship with my creator and savior. It's given me the humility to admit that I struggle with anxiety. It's given me the hope and the courage to tell others that I love Jesus and that I certainly hope that they do too and that I pray for them to do so. It's given me the perspective that I need to share the kind of patience and forgiveness that God gives to me by his grace with others as well to give them the same kind of grace that God has given to me. By the grace of God, I can understand that I have sinned and I can be broken by that reality, by, be broken by, by my rebellion and then be reborn in the power of Christ's love and the Holy Spirit living in me. My hope for you this week is that you would take time to truly consider what it means that everything about your relationship, everything about your relationship with God is a product and a gift of the grace of God and that you would be led to pray more thankfully, worship him more gladly, and treasure your relationship with him more preciously than ever before. This is the sort of truth that changes everything about our lives. It destroys the old to make way for the new. That's exactly what happened in Paul's own life. It redefined his categories of worth and value and righteousness. 
The grace of God completely upended Paul's entire world, and his message to the Philippians and to us is that the grace of God is even worth suffering some loss in this life in order to gain more and more of Jesus. At the end of verse 3, Paul wrote that we must put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to say that to to use his life as some sort of a a case study to put forward his own experiences of of investing in achievements and investing in himself and and even doing good hard work. He says, he, he puts forward his life as this example of, listen, I've done all of that, and yet it's simply not enough when it comes to the matters of righteousness and salvation before God. Paul had learned to, to set aside the things of his life, to set apart side parts of himself, which was no small thing because Paul had worked hard for who he was and who he had become in his life. He says as much in verse 4. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is basically saying here, look, I was a really big deal amongst my Jewish friends and among my Pharisee colleagues. I had power and privilege and prestige, acclaim and authority and notoriety. I had every advantage to succeed and I, made, and I took advantage of those advantages and made a name for myself and gained reputation and, and demanded respect of my peers. Paul had everything you could want as a brilliant, genius Jewish professional. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his entire perspective on what really matters and what it really means to have a relationship with God changed in an instant. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul met Jesus, confessed him as the Son of God and the Savior he'd been waiting for, and his whole life changed. He came to the realization that righteousness and salvation could not be produced by his privilege or his pedigree or his power or his achievements or his reputation or even his hard work. It was all worthless, rubbish, trash, garbage. The, the word that he uses there is, is, is the equivalent of table scraps that are tossed out. It's all rubbish compared to being in the presence of Christ. So again, we return to our questions for the day. What is it that you really truly value most in this life? What is the value and the worth you place on knowing God and having a rich relationship with him? In my opinion, verse 8 is one of the most profound and humbling and challenging ideas in all of Scripture. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. To think about and, and count all that I have gained in my life and to move those gains into, into the loss side of my mental ledger so that I can make room for Christ to be the only true gain in my head and my heart, I don't know about you all, but that's really hard for me. I spend most of my days enjoying the worth and the benefits of the things that I've gained, of the things that I've worked hard for, and the things that have been given to me. My education, my career, my family, my friends. The privilege of of being reasonably safe and secure here in the United States. The money I have, the health I enjoy, the silly little things like, like my dog, or my enjoyment of sports, or the ridiculous number of books that I own. So it is no small thing to move all these blessings aside 
and keep Christ as the center of my life and the only true worthy gain of my heart. It's no small thing to do, but I've got to do it. And so do you. What are, the, what are the gains, what are the things that you need to move aside? What do you need to hold with open hands and open arms and perhaps even let fall away entirely so that like Paul, you too can say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I can't create your list for you, but I can urge you to strive to make Christ the honest answer to the question, what is it that you really truly value most in this life? A silly little illustration that, that I put in your bulletin that I kind of continued to go back to this week and, and offer to you as a tool. If it's not your kind of thing, don't worry about it. But, but I kept thinking about this this week. It was, it was basically this idea. If I had a compass that, that always led me to the desire of my heart, how often would North point to Jesus? If I had a compass that always led me to the desires of my heart, how often would it take me down a road that led me to where Jesus Christ is? I will freely confess to you that my answer is all too often, not nearly often enough. Don't get me wrong, I know that I love Jesus, but it's not always to the extent that I can look at him and then look at the things that I have gained in my life and and see them as rubbish compared to my Savior. I want to stand with Jesus. But some days I want to stand next to him with my arms full of diplomas and paychecks and achievements and things that I've earned and and the things that I've worked hard for. I, I want to hold those together while I'm trying to stand next to Jesus. But arms full of these things that we've achieved in this world make it awfully hard to fully embrace the Christ. Not only that, but the longer you hold on to this stuff, the longer you start building up this false idea that it's somehow going to help you in God's view of, of who you are. But the reality is Paul's point here in the last few verses is that you need to let all of that go away because the righteousness that we truly need is a gift of Christ alone. In verse 8, Paul had said that for Christ's sake I suffered all things, the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then in verse 9 he goes on and says, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I, might not, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, become unlike him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. Faith in Jesus Christ, that ultimate and priceless gift from the grace-filled heart of our holy God leads us into a, re- a righteous life that we so desperately need but cannot achieve on our own. Interestingly, Paul goes ahead and confesses that he doesn't really know how he's going to get, get this life in Christ, how, how it's going to work out in the end. And when Paul says that he plans to attain the resurrection from the dead by any means possible, he doesn't mean that he was hoping that there are several different ways to Jesus or, or that there are, uh, there are several different ways to salvation. What he's saying is basically, I don't know what the circumstances are going to be that finally unites me to Christ. You know, for Paul, he could, you know, he could have been thinking, maybe Jesus will return you know, before the end of my life. Or maybe I'll live for 40 more years and do 40 more years of ministry and and pass away in my sleep. And then I'll finally be united to the full presence of Jesus. As it turned out, he would be executed not too terribly long after writing this letter. His life was full of hardship and suffering. Following Jesus cost him everything he'd worked hard for and gained in this life. He lost it all and yet gained everything he really truly needed by valuing Jesus above all things and knowing the incomparable, irreplaceable worth 
of a rich relationship with him? What is it that you really, truly value most in this life? What is the value and the worth you place on knowing God and having a rich relationship with him? May we humble ourselves to seek Jesus more fully each and every day so that we too can say with full confidence, I count everything as loss. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Would you pray with me?